When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Microphone check. You're listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. One, two, one, two. Factor chandelier on the beats. Yo, yo, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, who the hell is this? Calling me and waking me up at night in my slumber. Looking at my phone, I don't recognize this number. Yo, I can't say it. I'm looking at that shit. I think a bill, they want me to pay it. I'm like, fuck that. I don't know who they trying to find, yo. Cause I don't even know nobody who live in Ohio. Now I gotta duck and dodge. Probably get another go. job. Debt collectors uh, wanna uh, get my neck no uh, matter what's the cost. Uh, hey, debt collectors, I ain't paying you shit. Sally Mae, yeah, she stay on my dick. These niggas be up in my DMs. Said he trying to repossess my Prius, but I be sipping orange soda like my name was Keenan. <laughs> you ever notice how everyone you used to bone and all your family and your friends, we all got them student loans. Everybody shares the pain. It's not just you alone. That's why we always write these rhymes and give you all this moving poem. Imagine you're pulled over in a car full of meth. Yell a curse of the police and get fucking charged with a threat. You cupped and booked and swept inside the carceral net So now you got these lawyer fees and fines, carceral debt But I bet if we all came together by the hundred thousands We could get them to cancel all the mortgages on our houses But it's only possible if you're willing to be loud And let your people know you're done with debt and no longer allow it Yeah Fuck yeah, this is Dope Knife I'm Lingo Franca And we are waiting on reparations 
That was that was fire. That was a, that was a, that was a killer close. That was fun. That I was still basking a little bit and forgot to say hurry up. <laughs> it's all good. So no. how you been, man? Man, I've been good. Yeah, just uh, same old keeping up on this election fiasco while you know trying to do my thing. But geez, yo, it's almost like you can't even really make any plans right now until the election gets resolved. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. When's that going to be? I mean, I'm at least talking about election night. I mean, who knows how long that mess will be Are you still hanging on to that old pipe dream? Which one? Election night. No, I mean, we well, don't know shit, man. You know what? Know I don't know. I don't know now with the night. with the with the new poll numbers. I mean, obviously, none of this matters. Every you know, people got to vote. You know, so poll numbers don't mean shit. But right now, it's looking like he might not even really be able to cheat. But you know, he's gonna try. But I'm just and, saying. And I revised my previous statement in that on election night, we should know who our new DA is. Mm. Uh, we should know who our senators are going to be. And that stuff really matters. That yeah. stuff really, really matters. We take back the Senate. We have somebody who, in Athens at least, is going to be pushing for sort of justice practices and for, you know, not prosecuting, like, minor drug offenses and shit like that. That's yeah. the shit y'all got to get out and vote for. It's like the down-ballot races are the really important ones if you want to see, like, you know what I'm saying, the the real change happen. Yeah. In your like community. your carceral debt. We're talking about debt this week. And if you're thinking about your lawyer fees you got to pay and the fines you still owe the courts and the county and uh, all that shit, that shit is not determined by who your president is. That's determined by who your DA ends up being, whether or not you go to jail for smoking weed or... But I don't know, doing, doing a little math. Talking about <laughs> debt. I mean, even the fucking president owes debt. That motherfucker owes Yo, like $400 I can't million. I don't even know if we were prepared to get into that in this episode, but we absolutely should. Not much to get into. The president owes hundreds of millions of dollars and barely paid any taxes in the last 10 years. Not much more to it. I got to pay my, I got six grand. I got to pay my, pay off on my car. I, ha- I know friends that are still paying off on, um, like DUIs from yeah, like almost yeah, a decade ago yeah. and shit. So yeah, um, and, and, and here we have a president who just received world class medical care, the best medical care you can probably receive in the entire world, without having to pay a single penny. Thinking about how many people go into medical bankruptcy every year. You want to know what's even more wild? Think about this: he didn't even pay for that shit. He you paid- did. Yeah, like literally, because this is this is like like he just got government run health care, not government run health insurance. He got government run health care. The doctors were paid by the like state. The doctors, the, the, the nurses facility. were paid by the state. The lights were kept on on the crystal chandelier in his executive suite by the state, by us, by me and you. And he damn sure wasn't eager to drop any ducats on that shit. The nigga paid, yeah, nothing, nothing. So all we're asking for is for all of us to receive that. I mean, I don't even need the chandelier. I don't even need the six-room suite and the best doctor. Give me a decent doctor for free. (laughs) Fucking, I'm there. I'm in. But that's what we're talking about this week, using our debts to organize for a better world where we all have access to free healthcare. We all have access to free college and things like that. Aren't we speaking to somebody today? We are. So this week we speak with Astra Taylor, an author, documentarian, organizer with the Debt Collective. 
That affects all of us, from those who make it big and mismanage their money and lose it all, to those of us who never had any in the first place. And the Debt Collective offers a radical new organizing strategy for erasing these debts and establishing a new societal order where debt doesn't exist at all. So before we talk with Astra, we're going to go through a couple of interesting stats and facts about debt in America and this debt-based economy. And what hip-hop has had to say about it. All right, so per Business Insider, the average American debt totals $51,900. And that includes mortgage loans, home equity, lines of credit, auto loans, credit card debt, student loans, and personal loans. Student loan debt in 2020 is now about $1.56 trillion. The latest student loan debt statistics from 2020 show how serious the student loan debt crisis has become for borrowers across all age demographics and age groups. There are 45 million borrowers who collectively owe almost $1.6 trillion in student loan debt in the U.S. Research shows that about 137.1 million Americans have faced financial hardship because of medical costs. According to a 2019 survey conducted by Gallup and the nonprofit West Health, Americans borrowed an estimated $88 billion last year to pay for health care. In 2017, the United States spent about $3.5 trillion, or 18% of the GDP, on health expenditures, more than twice the average among developed countries. Of that $3.5 trillion, $1.5 trillion is directly or indirectly financed by the federal government. Prison, parole, and probation operations generate about $81 billion in annual costs to the U.S. taxpayer, while police, court costs, bail bonds fee, and prison phone fees generate another $100 billion in court costs, and those are paid by the individual. And so I've read a lot about the way that, like, there's private companies that uh, contract out to to provision uh, monitor ankle bracelets to people on probation or house arrest, that they have to then pay every month and this is like an extra bill. If they if they fall behind on paying the company for their ankle monitor, they can get sent back to jail. And so these carceral forms of debt, the you know, in addition to bail bonds, fees, or court costs, um, but all of these things were involved with like probation and house arrest and like being on parole, like with like paying your parole officer, things like that. Like, in the fact that you can get sent back to jail if you don't pay them are, like, a really ominous and, like, I mean, cruel form of debt that we put people in as a country. I feel like it's things like that that... It's, like, shit like that is why I'm not overly harsh on people who believe, like, wild conspiracy theories and shit like that. Because the shit just seems deliberate. You know what I'm saying? It feels like we oh, live yeah. in this net that is just, like... Layers upon layers of deliberate fuckery to make, just make ooh. life as uncomfortable as it can possibly be. You I just know had a chill go down my spine when you likened like believing we live in this net <laughs> to like a conspiracy theory. I was like, this isn't just what everyone believes. <laughs> no, for real, right? Wait, I mean, does not everyone realize we live <laughs> in this net where they're trying to drag us down deeper and deeper? Would you would you say it's commonly known that? police uh, u- utilize citations and the revenues they generate from that in yeah, order to Yeah, so the state extracts a lot of money from us in like little ways 
not just from the prison industrial complex, but just general revenue from fines and fees and uh, forfeitures. So according to a national database compiled by Governing Magazine, at least 583 cities and towns have collected 10% or more of their general fund revenue from fines and forfeitures. Among those jurisdictions, 80 relied on fines to generate over half their budget revenue. Most of those municipalities came from just four states, Georgia, Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, if, if Athens were to collect... 10% of our general fund revenue from fines and forfeitures. That'd be about $30 million. Uh, not that I I should know if that's true, but I don't think it's that bad here. Um, according to the New York Fed's household debt and credit report from qu- the fourth quarter of 2019, Americans owed $1.33 trillion in outstanding vehicle debt. So financing these f- cars... I mean, not even these fancy cars. We live in such a car-centric, like, infrastructure sphere that just to live, you got to go into debt to buy a car. Yeah. Just to to be able to get to work, like your car breaks down, you lose your job because you don't have a stable form of transportation anymore. That means you can't pay rent, which means you become homeless, which means then you lose your kids. Like you have, like having a car is so critical in so many. Even just like maintaining having a car, it's like how many. Yeah, so you have like you're you're paying your car off month after month. You've got your monthly payment, and then all you accidentally like you get hit, and then you gotta and your insurance won't cover it, and now you gotta pay five hundred dollars, and you already have like a three four hundred dollar five hundred dollar car payment every month, and your insurance costs every month. And now you can't even use the car that you own, but you still owe the fucking bank for it. That's one of my worst fears. Not my worst, but like, I think about it. So these are all topics, I mean, from from financing cars to financing... Your student loans. Loans that um, many rappers have touched on. And I just want to bring up how uniquely touched by this the hip-hop generation is because older generations... Have, like, I really feel like they have no idea what it's like to be this in debt. They grew up when they could get cheap loans for houses through the Federal Housing Administration. Co- college cost ne- near to nothing before Reagan. Us, we graduated thousands in debt into a reception for the love of God. The prison industry didn't boom until the, eight- until the 80s and 90s. So all these fucking boomers got to like do all the drugs imaginable without <laughs> being swept into the carceral net. And, you know, saddled with all these fines and fees and this debt. And then us, we are just fucked. Just fucked. And so, like, I feel like while perhaps in our investigation of, like, the lyricscape for this episode, there wasn't as much reference to debt as... I might have imagined given these realities. I mean, I think it speaks to hip hop somewhat as well that like people don't want to floss what they don't got. They don't want to like flaunt what they lack. So like they're not, I mean, they might be talking about getting out of debt, yeah. but they're not going to be like, I got a lien on my car. What? Like It's it's kind of like when we were um, talking about labor, you know, it's just, it's just one of those. No one wants to own up to the fact they work at Dairy Queen. Exactly. It's not necessarily, uh, I guess trope would be the right word to use for it. It's not necessarily a trope that's used in hip-hop. The trope of, like, 
Um, well, maybe I should say mainstream hip hop because you know what? There, you know, I do, like you said, not necessarily rapping about being in debt, but I definitely used to know a lot of indie cats who used to rap about being broke. Yeah, and then yeah. we have a good example today, Life and Debt from Seattle Spinners Blue Scholars. I mean, they're more conscious rappers. Their music and lyrics frequently focus on struggles between socioeconomic classes, challenging authority, um, often rooted in uh, the MC geologics history as an activist within the Filipino-American community dealing with issues of immigration, racism, U.S. imperialism in the Philippines. But in this song, Life and Debt, they talk explicitly about working class struggles of working a nine to five, uh, eight hours a day, coming home, your bills are late, your interest accumulates, collection agency waits, paycheck to paycheck. Let's listen a little bit of this. Time paid for labor, working eight to five, sometimes six, seven to eight, we come home and barely know the I also building. find it really interesting that they have like a subtle critique of like the nonprofit industrial complex. At one point, he says, uh, 501c3 community plantations, non-profit sector propped up to kill the movement for the changes in production relations. So he's talking about how, like, these charities that are meant to, like, you know, aid the poor really aren't impacting, like, the power dynamics in society or, like, who controls, like, the profits of, like, the working class's labor and... Uh, I just thought that was really interesting. I mean, especially with relation to like this idea of debt that we're talking about today where so many things are privatized, education, housing market, getting a car, uh, healthcare, that we're, we rely on like, the, we're like, we as the needy, like rely on nonprofits. Like, yeah. oh, may I have some more, please? Like for the food banks and the diaper banks and the job skills training and the the homeless shelters, when it's not really like organizing us to push back on the fact that it's just really rich, greedy fucks are are the reason why we Take, don't don't we, have this stuff in the have, first place. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but the the part where he's like, "But woman, you're my comrade, ride or die." When the revolution making Mother Earth standing with me in the grocery line, I don't know why. I just love that you're my comrade part. Just with the the whole like tone of the song, it just kind of gives it like this sort of socialist flair. This is like. I don't know if that's what he meant by it, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. <laughs> uh, no, just another um, observation about the song. This is definitely one of those sort of songs, and you probably could hear it when you heard the little snippet, but it's like if you put it on, it's definitely something that could just be on, and you would, wouldn't would even think twice about what it's about. You would just kind of, oh, that's a oh, pleasant yeah, song. Oh, yeah, that sample yeah. from the dramatics like, in I like it. that. Yeah. But then it's one of those ones where upon closer listening, you're like, oh, shit, this is about, and then what's the name of this? Life that's oh, that mass that. political educational potential of hip-hop. Yeah. Or you just put the song on maybe 20 times in the car, and then it, like, gradually radicalizes you. Just slowly. Yeah. Then we got New York rapper Samus. With schools out. A lot of rappers touch on particular issue of student loans. I feel like a lot of, like, the post-hip-hop generation, not the first people to grow up with hip-hop, but, like, the second generation of people to grow up with hip-hop. A lot of us grew up, uh, we graduated into a recession where it's become difficult to make those payments on the education we just received. Um, and so 
Samus is one of many rappers that touches on the the money that we all fucking owe Sally Mae. Let's check that out. It's like you were talking about um, the generational divide and how we perceive debt to be. And in her, in the beginning of her verse, she was mentioning living at home with your parents because of student loans. And that's kind of something that I think is, you know, for people in our generation is a lot more of a common theme and feeling. Like, I know, like, my parents, like, the notion of, oh, someone who's a grown man or woman moving back in with their parents still has a certain taboo to it. Whereas for our generation, it's like, yo, you know how many bills we got? Like, that just might be the necessity of how yeah, we got Yeah, you know how many live, bills you know? our parents got? And they're like, hey, why don't you stay living at home with me? She later in the song talks about how she had to buy a new MacBook and, like, the need to, like, have access to really expensive technology just to, like, access your, access your workforce, access your schooling right now. Uh, Etc. And so it's like so many bills piling up. In addition to, as she references, just purely what you got to pay to get your credit hours and build up your network to try to get a good job when you get out of school. You mentioned uh, how she references Sally Mae, which is a common reference in hip hop. Very common. Yeah. So from... Rhapsody, to Wale, Deontay Hitchcock, Big Crit, Corday, all over the place. In fact, and Corday's been around. Uh, he has he does this interesting thing where he sort of he's like sort of just like braggadocio rhyming, but then he has this moment where he jumps back to like seeing. I think in the I I, I interpreted it as the perspective of a fan. Although it might seem so bittersweet when you ain't got nothing to eat and Sally Mae calling you a phone for like the fifth time this week and all your bills are overdue. Like, he, I know he's not talking about himself there. Let's hear that. It's like, yeah, let's listen oh, to it. Real it seems so bittersweet and you ain't got nothing to eat and Sally Mae calling your phone for like the fifth Maybe time. Maybe I misinterpreted that. Maybe he is talking about himself. I mean, it sounds like he's talking about himself, but I mean, even if he isn't, it's kind of like a universal feeling. I mean, it's the. Like you're saying, everybody has that feeling. It could be he knows somebody and he's just drawing from somebody else's experience. Yeah. But either way, it it totally makes sense with who he is being yeah. as young as he is. Yeah, it's got that kind of like backpack realness. I feel like backpackers are like a little more straight up about like, hey, yo, I'm working at Dairy Queen. Well, yeah, I mean, the backpack or indie aesthetic is kind of geared around just being more earnest and realistic with what your circumstances are as far as what you draw from to you know to inspire you to write your rhymes and stuff like that so LaCroix has a similarly like uh how should I say this like pensive vibe on this song. Where let's listen to it first. This is uh, always new by Lecrae. Professors, couple thousand for a lesson. Graduated in recession. Sally May just want to check and I'm stressing. Rap music, it was all a dream. Now I'm in a session. So that very thing I'm talking about, like this debate about whether or not we should go to school and try to get an education. Is it worth it? We never saw ourselves there. We go, we leave. Thousands in debt. Sally Mae is calling, stressing out, and then chasing music as like I, the way to finally make it out of this situation. Or not, even if not even necessarily that, it's uh, how having the chain of 
something like your the debt of getting your education, how that can prevent you from pursuing things that you mm. would rather be pursuing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I mean, whether that be music or maybe whatever, you know, it's just it's it's a fucking burden. It's a it's another thing you have to do because it's like I know I know cats who who were trying to do their art but did the full Monty full ride through school you know yeah and getting out it's like they don't really have time to fuck around they gotta immediately start paying that shit back so like pursuing something fun you know is not necessarily in the cards anymore so we got another song that's kind of actually fun and celebratory in that the the protagonist uh is really excited about having paid off Sally Mae and this is Sally Mae back is it the white lady? Yeah. No, so I really love that Sally Mae in this music video is depicted as this stern, older, suburban looking woman with black nails, which is so fucking funny. That's absolutely how I picture Sally Mae all these years. Before I got it in my mind as like a sufficient enough adult to realize like Sally Mae wasn't like a living person, person to yeah. whom like we owe money. I was like, oh man, this fucking bitch probably has like an ascot. So the next song that we got is it's Cold the, yeah, World. Cold, Cold World. World it's got a little Cole. Sally Mae reference that I think is energy we need to keep regarding our debts in the spirit of the debt collective. So when he says, he talks about, you know, making a lot of money off his shows. If I win, maybe then I could pay Sally Mae. Told her I'd be dealing with some real life shit. She be asking when, bitch, when I feel like it. <laughs> so that's so, the energy that we need for this The same show. energy we gonna keep for our landlords. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. so excited today to be talking to Astra Taylor, author, organizer, documentarian, and fellow former Athenian, which I think is actually how I came to know about your work. I was at the Nation offices in Manhattan in 2018, uh, meeting with their editorial board. And upon leaving, they said, oh, we have this book from this woman from Athens that we want to give you as a gift. And it was Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. I almost said need it when it's gone, which is not wrong. But um, And so I took it home with me and I put it on my bookshelf. And it was a couple months later that I was switching medications uh, under the uh, orders of my psychiatrist and had like a suicidal like break essentially and I was sent uh, to a hospital and they allowed me to bring a book but they had to be soft cover so I sent my mom to the house I was like find me a soft cover book to read while I'm in the loony bin and she brought me democracy may not exist but we'll miss it when it's gone and so I spent four days the only thing I could do was read your book um, and it was transformative. It was it was like my lifeline in an otherwise cold and sterile world for like four days. Um, and that brings us to our topic of discussion today because um, I still am in debt from being in the mental hospital. I owe the hospital a couple thousand dollars and they call me and they send me mail. And I am not alone in that I realized, especially through reading the Debt Collective's new book, uh, Can't Pay, Won't Pay. So we're here today to talk about debt. How did we get here with it? And what do we do now? So if you could, to start out with... First, I have to respond to that amazing introduction, though, because I think that was probably the most powerful introduction I've ever been given. And I just want to say out of the gate, the admiration is mutual and one of the wonders of the internet, which brings many terrible things into our lives, is that I've been able to watch Mariah's rise and get to know her from afar. Uh, and, you know, how much you capture to me the ideal spirit of Athens, right? Which is this town of creativity and music that it's, you know, and, um, and joy. But, you know, it, it it is also a community that, you know, I always felt really needed to be politicized and should be more radical than I felt it was growing up there. Um, so the fact you're bringing those two strands together is really um, just moving and important to me. And your story about reading the book, um, yeah, in the mental hospital and it leaving you in debt is amazing. So thank you to the Nation editors, my friends over there, for, for giving it to you. Okay, so we're in this debt-based economy and 
just the way I look at it is very few things are coincidences and very few things are accidents. So it kind of tend, you know, makes me believe that this all has a reason for it. So why, why is our economy structured this way? Why are so many people in debt? I mean, it says, it's, it says so much, right? <laughs> it ties into the bigger question about the debt-based economy. I mean, we are in a situation where as individuals, we have to debt finance what should be our basic rights and our, you know, our basic entitlements. You know, we shouldn't ever experience indebtedness as a consequence of any sort of health crisis, whether it's a physical health crisis or a mental health crisis. I mean, most countries don't have medical debt. It doesn't exist because they have universal health care. So, and this is something that we take for granted as a feature of American life. You know, there's lots of research on this. You know, Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail often, you know, made a lot of noise about the fact that medical debt is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. It is a leading driver of, of poverty in this country. It's what tips people over the edge. The fact that something happens you don't have control over, you know, and then suddenly you're buried in debt and you're your life, the tenuous threads by which you're holding on fray and, you know, things fall apart. And it's just, you know, a moral outrage, but it ties to these bigger dynamics. I mean, the thing about debt, once you start kind of cracking it open, is you can go all the way back. Like debt, debt precedes capitalism. Debt as a tool of domination and oppression precedes cap capitalism as we know it. So if you go back to um, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, what you had was people being driven into debt by the wealthy and then having to sell themselves into debt slavery, debt peonage. So, I mean, it's like a very ancient, violent form of economic control. Um, but it's really, you know, it's it's really central to our, our modern economy. And the insight, I think, from the Debt Collective is just that, you know, we are as we move away from what limited, imperfect welfare state supports we had in the 20th century, right? We're, we're moving away from a welfare state to a debt-fair state. So a world in which we have to take on the cost as individuals of uh, pro provisioning for ourselves through mechanisms of debt, what we should be entitled to. So education, healthcare, housing, I think, which should be a human right. Um, food, basic sustenance, right? That's people are putting their, um, you know, their their food and, and basic necessities on their credit cards or on payday loans, especially now in the age of COVID. And so it's like, and basically people are getting robbed twice. You're underpaid at your job if you have a job and then you don't make enough money. So then you have to borrow and you end up paying interest and fees. And that's driving the incredible unethical concentration of wealth and power in this country. So it's a huge problem and our, principle, and this I'm speaking as the Debt Collective, as a founder of the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors, is that debtors have power they're not utilizing. That when you say that thing can't pay, won't pay, um, that if we do that collectively, then actually what we can do, just as a labor union withholds its labor, debtors can withhold their payments and exert some a countervailing force on the powers that be. And you know we're at a point where we can't afford to leave power on the table. So you talked a little bit about what the Debt Collective is. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us where it came from? I mean, it's one of these crazy things that only happens in a collaborative setting, right? So one, one thing I say in the preface to the book, because I, I wrote the preface and then the rest of the book is co-authored, you know, is that 
individually not paying your loans isn't a debt strike, right? So I defaulted on my student loans in 2008 because I just didn't have enough money to pay them. And so what happens? I get a phone call from the collector and they say, you know, hey, you haven't paid your loans in 270 days. So guess what? Now you owe 20% more. So now you owe $45,000 and now your credit's destroyed and da, 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 da. You know, that wasn't a dead strike. <laughs> that was that was just, you know, me um, being unable to pay and then being penalized. But that um, kind of precipitated this political awakening. I mean, I think I just thought, well, A, like, why do I have so much debt from going to, you know, college anyway? And I really bristled. I felt like, okay, the fact that I'm having to pay this for the next 30 years is, you know, going to constrain me. It's going to make me make choices I don't want to make. It's going to control my life, you know, and um, it's going to be this thing I'm always having to manage and worry about and like, and just work basically just to like, pay this inflating balloon of interest. It's like an albatross or something. It's like an albatross, you know? (laughs) Um, And so I think I was ready. It just took, it it took me finding others before I could, you know, begin on the path that led to the debt collective. And so what happened is in the early days of Occupy Wall Street, I started collaborating with people. We realized that indebtedness was something that was really galvanizing. It was bringing people to the encampments, not just in New York City where I was, but around the country. And one person, his name is Thomas Goki, um, said this thing. I vividly remember it because we were talking about, you know, kind of what campaigns or actions we'd like to see come out of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And he said, unions, debtors need to make unions just like there are labor unions. And for me, it was like one of those moments when a light bulb went off in my head, just like in a cartoon. And I was like, whoa, you're right. Like the model of unionization of like workers coming together in the workplace to argue, uh, argue, but to fight for higher wages, benefits, more time off, right? That model should be applied to other arenas of the economy. And and it's true, like if we don't pay, they don't get their money. Yeah. And that's that's what they're banking on. I mean, they've, they've projected our future payments into their, you know, revenue uh, forecasts, right? Like they, they need that. And it flipped. What it did was it caused a whole transformation of how I saw things. So suddenly my indebtedness, instead of it just being this burden, this albatross, I realized that it was actually someone else's profit. That every payment I was making month after month after month, I was paying more than the original principal, the original amount of borrow, because that's profit for someone else. And so I started mm-hmm. to see the way our collective debts are an asset of the ruling class. Yeah. Yeah. But then also an asset that we could leverage to demand change and demand the abolition of debts, but also the provision of public goods. In other words, give us that universal health care so we don't have medical debt. Give us the universal education so we don't have to have student loans. And I think give us social housing because we shouldn't have to live yeah. in a commodity and, you know, give people the the um, goods and services that they, they need to live dignified lives. I mean, you know, I'm I. I'm for mass decommodification of <laughs> basically oh, yeah. everything. Yeah. Basically so, everything. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. But I think, I mean, on the front of like, where does it come from? I mean, I don't know. Growing up in Athens, you know, my parents were like always, you know, on the brink of economic catastrophe. Even though my dad was a professor, they, you know, they declared bankruptcy when I was a teenager. My dad had tons and tons of student loans. You know, they, he was just paying off like, far, far into his career. There were 
You know, my mom was just recounting how we used to go out to the mall on like Atlanta Highway, I guess it's called. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And eat at this one terrible restaurant. I never knew why we would go there at the end of the month. Like it was horrible. And she was like, because it was like the one place that took this one credit card, you know? So I think there was this sense, like, I, I think I just had this sense that, you know, something wasn't working with this system. It's like, you know, if you're, somebody's gonna work a full-time job, they should at least be able to like make it to the end of the month, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. you were saying kind of like Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. was kind of going on around like the inception of the debt collective. So I was wondering, um, what do you think is like, uh, if you could pinpoint any particular public policy that's led us to this moment in the debt crisis? Like, I mean, obviously we know Corona is is you know, doing what it's doing to the economy, but mm-hmm. we were we were in a bubble before Corona happened. And, yeah, you know, it was looking kind of timid before that. But what w- what condition led us to to being in this? Is it is it merely just the people at the top want to grab power, or is it more just individual systems that kind of add up to being this monster that it is, where everyone's in debt? I mean, it's a a complex array of forces got us here and I think you you know in a really expansive sense we have to look back and look at the history of capitalism especially you know what we would call the history of racial capitalism and look at the way debt and credit have played out politically so if you go back to you know the sort of golden age of American capitalism the mid-20th century and look at how the, the middle class was formed. You know, it was, we, the white middle class was formed because there was easy access to government subsidized credit in the form of government backed mortgages, right? That a, a program of giving a certain community, a racialized community access to credit on fair terms is what sort of built the, the sort of cliche of the American dream for a certain set of people. And it was very exclusionary. So I think something like 96 or 97% of of uh, federally secured mortgages in that period went to white mm-hmm. patriarchal, you know, yeah, nuclear families. Yeah, we just families. talked about like the FHA last on last week's episode. Yeah, and so access to credit, you know, has um, access to credit, and then the inverse, which is denial of credit, redlining, or or predatory lending, you know, have created this unequal, the unequal racialized economy that we live in today. And so I think it's important to put that 20th century history like sort of as the foundation, even though we could go further back, right? We can go go back to the abolition of slavery and the fact that, you know, formerly enslaved people then uh, the the dominant economic relationship was sharecropping, tenant farming, right? And and, and debt there as a form of of, um, suppression of the uh, drive for, you know, true, egalitarian <laughs> democracy. So, but in the 70s, something definitely happened, you know, and scholars talk about neoliberalism, they talk about financialization, but basically, you know, what happened was the ruling class went on a war with the welfare state, you know, and wages uh, wages were suppressed. And what happened is we covered that up by giving people access to credit. You know, that's that's when people started having credit cards um, that's when tuition became 
more common at public universities. People started, you know, taking on debt to go to college. And so, you know, there was like an economic shift that's not just one policy, but it was kind of a reorganization of the economy that diminished the state, that um, shored up corporate power, that covered up inequities with credit. And now we're, you know, in a situation where that system is kind of, yeah, well, that system's dominant. But then with COVID, it's like, you know, incredibly disastrous because, you know, when people can't, when people don't have paychecks, when they don't have, when their unemployment benefits uh, dry up, like you're just going to have mass delinquency, mass default and, you know, debt and despair as a consequence. And it's like, so we are living in a moment of record consumer debt. I mean, it's something like $14 trillion. And that's a symptom of just the maldistribution of wealth in this country. It's like, so you have people who just dream of literally like we, the average, you know, American now just dreams of having zero dollars. Like, oh my God, if I could just have zero and not negative, that would be awesome. And meanwhile, you have, you know, these billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who's really just like, you know what I dream of? A trillion dollars. And he's almost fucking there. Like he's almost there. But I think the the depth of this model of debt financing um, is you know, it, it sort of knows no bounds. I mean, one thing we talk a lot about in the book and are working at more as, as the debt collective is the fact that, you know, people go into debt for their own incarceration, right? And that mm-hmm. connects with this larger moment where people are discussing prison abolition and, uh, you know, our criminal injustice system or whatever we want to call it. But, you know, the fact is people have to take on debt to pay cash bail. So often, you know, it's not cash bail, it's credit bail. So people's family members and loved ones end up um, going into debt to get people out of people they love out of cages. The average bail debt in California is $50,000, you know, and often you have to have that even if you're like found not guilty and you're, the charges are, um, you know, charges are dismissed. People have to pay for probation. I mean, so it's this insidious model that's in its tendrils are in, you know, all aspects of our life. And it is ultimately is a way of it's it's a form of just allowing people who are already rich to extract more. And that's the thing we're trying to we're trying to, like, get people to see the economy in this way as Mm -hmm. to denaturalize debt and ask you know, why it's so omnipresent and, and whose interests it serves. Because we're told this lie that we take it on ourselves and we take that risk on so we can like better ourselves and better our future. And I think we want to say, no, it's, it's imposed on us and it's a form of control and it's a form of um, enrich. It, it's, it's a means of enriching those who are already in a position, um, you know, already who already have the upper hand. Yeah. So Talk to us, if you could, a little bit about the impacts of debt organizing to date mm-hmm. and some of what you hope it can achieve. Really interested in, like, y'all have scored some some wins already in the, you know, few years since this got off the ground. Yeah. So the idea, this idea of the Debt Collective and as, as a union, um, you know, we tried to see if that concept would actually take off. So uh, we launched what we call sort of our pilot debtors union in 2015. And basically, we made contact with students who had gone to one of the big 
for-profit college chains. So people probably know like University of Phoenix and ITT Tech. It was one of those companies, it was called Corinthian Colleges. They'd been totally de- like lied to, defrauded. So they went to these vocational programs and came out of them with like $70,000, $100,000, $150,000, $200,000 of debt. Yeah. And, you know, and their resumes were laughed at. Um, and the abuses of these companies was well documented. The thing, the thing is that for-profit colleges on the back end, like if you have a student loan, whether it's from University of Phoenix or Harvard, it's the same financial, it's the same financial structure leading straight to the Department of Education, right? So you're, you know, one degree might be fancy and gets you um, access and one degree might be kind of risible, but the, 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 the money, the, the, the system that matters is all the same. And, and you know, so that's ultimately what we're, we're targeting. But basically we um, organized the first ever student debt strike. It began with only 15 people. Uh, we also developed a legal strategy um, that has so far been put to use by, we just got numbers, 360,000 people because these for-profit colleges are huge. And, you know, we ended up being the first group to ever win debt relief from the federal government, from the Department of Education, first under Obama. And we've been fighting Betsy DeVos ever since. And we've won well over a billion dollars. That's with a B, a billion dollars to date. And then in doing that, we devised this legal, what we realized in our research was actually the Department of Education has the ability, Congress already vested the Congress already vested the Department of Education with the power to erase every penny of student debt. And Damn. yes, they can do it. There's literally like a, a destroy button in the Department of Education. Okay. We wrote like this one page letter that if the department, if the Secretary of Education would just sign it, all of our federal student loans would be obliterated. Um, and, uh, you know, then we could start trying to figure out how to actually solve our problems. But what's amazing is that this theory that is admittedly pretty fringe because of course it hasn't been done before a few years ago when we started pushing it a couple weeks ago um, in the bizarreness of 2020 senators elizabeth warren and chuck schumer from new york so chuck schumer for i mean is not a liberal guy he's a bad man (laughs) but they uh, announced a senate resolution basically saying uh, yeah, lo- use this legal argument and erase $50,000 per borrower in the country. And so they, you know, it was quite the surreal moment where these ideas that fundamentally came from the Debt Collective, which is this group born of Occupy Wall Street, right? suddenly mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren are there saying exactly what we've been saying for the last four years and, and acknowledging. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. And acknowledging. Yeah, they have, we have the power to do this and this will cost nothing. So there's no, you know, because what it does, if you just cancel student debt, you're not, there's no expenditure, right? They don't need to do any cost analysis. What it does is it means all that money that people would be otherwise paying to their loan servicer, they can now pay their rent. They could buy some music. They could eat well, right? That money would be in the economy. So it would be a huge economic stimulus. That's like the capitalist argument for it because all that money could go to things people actually need and, you know, quote unquote, get the economy moving again instead of sending it back to the federal government via these like predatory collectors and mediators. 
Wouldn't it also be good for people's mental health if not like the majority of the population was walking around stressed out? People from are debt? like, open the economy. The suicide rate is going. There's all these deaths of despair. Exactly. It's like, or we could just cancel all the debt. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I just heard of a friend's dad like last week and he killed himself because he was so indebted. And then with COVID, he was isolated and he couldn't see a way out. Right. Um, and then he's so indebted that you have these creditors basically um, like vying for a piece of whatever like limited little estate he had. Right. Like whatever things he had after oh his God. death. So one statistic in the book is the average American dies with sixty two thousand dollars of debt. And um, and I think you're totally right that it's a, it, it's. A mental health crisis. I mean, it's something that like you feel the anxiety in your body and in your mind, right? When you are worried about how you're going to pay your loans or whether or not you're going to be evicted. I mean, 40 million people are at risk of eviction now in the rent, even with the moratorium. What they yeah. know is that there's just going to be a massive rent bill at the end of this. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it has total uh, psychological effects. And those are not Incidental. So this is one thing that's really important. The fact that this the, there is a disciplinary function of debt. So mm-hmm. and and people say this, you know, really clearly. So Alan Greenspan, right, the um, uh, the economist, you know, it said, you know, right, if you have a if you have people who hold mortgages, you're not going to have a country that's like going on strike. You're not going to have a populace that is going to be you know, demanding more. You're going to have yeah. people who are... Right, they can't come to the mm-hmm. demonstration because they got to be at work because yeah. they're trying not to get kicked out of their fucking house. <laughs> yeah, and they have so much... I mean, if you're a renter, you get kicked out of your house, it's bad. But if you have someone who, and you've been paying your mortgage for 15 years, you don't want to lose all of that, you know, wealth that you imagine that you've, you've invested in there, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is... So, you know, that was well appreciated was that a nation of mortgage holders would be what is the word I'm looking for? More subdued, right? Um, and and more docile. And then with student loans, this history is really clear. I mean, basically, Ronald Reagan was governor of California. Um, you know, the University of California uh, system was the crown jewel of the country. It was public. It was free. And then what happened? Well, there was there was student arrest at Berkeley, famously. There was also at uh, this at the um, junior college system. Uh, the formation of basically black radicalism. I mean, the Black Panther Party yeah. emerged at Merritt College and these free public colleges. And yeah. Reagan was like, "Oh hell no!" Yeah, no, he really, truly was. Like, this is not, you know, this is not a conspiracy theory. He basically was like, "Hell no!" And we're going to kick those bums off campus. And when they pay for it, they're not going to, um, they're not going to engage in this kind of behavior. And so there was a you know, uh, some neoliberal economists um, were like, OK, this is how you control that is that you impose tuition and debt and then you get, you know, and then your college students stop being rebels. And so it's always I mean, it is it is a tool of 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 control. And, you know, in the psychological effect of that, of like make a population that feels like they're constantly on the brink of economic collapse is like that, to some people, that's a benefit. You know, and um, and the challenge for organizing debtors then is that what you first have to do is say, mm. OK, I know this makes you like I know you can't 
can't face that bill. I know that it makes you sick to like open that envelope because it's scary. And I know that you've been indoctrinated into this worldview that tells you that it's your fault. And that if you had done something better or been a better person, you wouldn't be in debt. Hey, you'd be a millionaire. But, you know, let go of that shame and stigma and realize you are not alone, which is our slogan, and, and come together. So one thing I think we offer as a, as a union, as an, as an organization, is not just the possibility that your debts will be erased, but also that you can erase that shame, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And that that's also a huge value. You started to talk a little bit about uh, the challenges of debtors organizing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious how it differs from other forms of organizing. In the book, you all talk about how, like, we're all spread out across ge- geography and we're all of all different walks of life. And look at it as an asset, being able to connect with folks who have a shared experience, even though they might be different than you in other ways. I wonder if that might also make it harder, mm-hmm. given that in Athens, like, you know, last week there was a video of a young man getting tased by the cops. And now we're all in the street together, you know, a couple days later because it's like geographically bound. Like we all live in this place together. We're all going to stand up for changes in this place. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, like what the two sides of the coin are with the sort of distributed nature of the uh, demographic of debtors. I guess my my thought in response to that, though, is that even to have people mobilize locally with that sense of consciousness, you still have to do you still have to do work. It's not spontaneous, right? It's not That's like true. neighbors. Neighbors don't just naturally like spontaneously or naturally rise up or have solidarity. Like that's something to me as someone who used to live in Athens. You hearing you say that, I'm like, wow, that means that you've done the work and other people have done the work of organizing mm. to even to get people in Athens to see, see themselves as a political community that should respond to something like that, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, organizing regionally is also, it, it also takes effort um, and you have to form those bonds and that consciousness. Um, and and uh, and so in that sense, you know, it's not that different to organize people at a distance um, mm. because, you know, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're exposing a commonality right? It's like, okay, actually, you know, at the end of the month, <laughs> you're all stressing out over making this payment. And that's something that, 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 that brings you together and um, can unite you. So I, you know, I think for the people on the left or people who want to engage in activism, like the, the building, the bonds of solidarity is just, it's always really hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I guess for me, like one of my naive questions is always like, why is it harder to divide us than unite us? Why? Uh, <laughs> why? <laughs> um, and and then I think I'm also just interested in like, well, what new forms of uniting can we invent? Like to approach mm-hmm. it as like a creative question or problem, like what what other ways can we identify? What ways can we identify that 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 um, bring these unlikely alliances uh, into being? And I think debt, you know, I think we have to not universalize too much about indebtedness. Like that's why it's important to, to keep that lens that that reveals uh, the way that racism has shaped indebtedness. So one of our phrases at the beginning was debt is the tie that binds the 99%, but it doesn't bind everybody equally, equally right? Like yeah. debt is 
common, but it's not an equalizer. It amplifies inequalities in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, you know, for example, with our for-profit college union, you know, it was a really, it was a really diverse group. I mean, there were people who lived in rural areas, and there were urban youth, and there were, uh, you know, middle-aged grandmas who had kind of gone back to college after the economic crisis in 2008. And then there were young people just starting their lives out. And, you know, they were black, they were white. A lot of them were first generation, a lot of single mothers. But, you know, I think when you when you do organize with a material analysis and you follow those chains of debt or, you know, look to where people are being exploited in the workplace, you will kind of you you will end up with a, a diverse coalition, right? Because you know, that's that's the that's who's being exploited in this world and taken advantage of. Um, so, yeah, there are there are real there are definitely challenges in debtor organizing and they're, you know, and I'm not sure they're not that different than organizing um, in general. I think we have I think the thing about debtor organizing is just that it's it's a new framework, right? Like we're we're yeah, accustomed to thinking. Yeah, we're yeah. accustomed to thinking, OK, organize electorally organize at the workplace. Yeah, get out and vote or join a union. <laughs> yeah, and this is like, okay, hey, here's this whole new set of not just of, of corporate targets and government targets because there's the sense of like, you could organize against the bail bonds company or the payday lender or the bank or the government apparatus that enables their behavior or could potentially regulate them or implement a policy that could put them out of business. Um but, but it's, it's, so I think that's, I think right now we're still in like the proselytizing phase of like, hey, this is how the economy is organized. It's organized to put you in debt. So we should then use this as an opportunity to organize ourselves in a new way to transform it. Mm. Absolutely. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. 
AT&T. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I was also curious in terms of challenges um, in my lifetime, at least I've seen movements emerge out of acute moments of injustice, the murders of like of Michael Brown or George Floyd as some personally impactful examples. I wonder if you see a potential matchstick moment for debtors organizing the way that we've seen previous uh, moments of injustice spark these huge movements um, around a certain kind of organizing or in a certain um, frame or area? Such a good question. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes those moments can be made. I mean, this is a whole theory mm-hmm. of organizing. Um, that, you know, I don't know if you followed like the momentum model, which has influenced the um, groups like Sunrise, for example. But their whole thing is mm-hmm. that you can generate those galvanizing moments of crisis. Um, instead mm-hmm. of kind of waiting for one. Um, so my my impulse is, you know, debtor organizing. Um, you know, I think one of the things about debt, I mean, it's a little bit like the wage, right? It's kind of part of part of the ideology of capitalism is, oh, that's private, right? You don't talk about that. You don't you don't go around talking about what you're paid. You don't go around talking about what what you owe. And so it's kind of insidious in that way. It's a little invisible. Um, so it challenges my imagination to think like, what would be the big spark? But on the other hand, you know, I think with COVID, our economy is like going off the rails. I mean, once again, 40 million people in this country are going to be an imminent threat of eviction and homelessness and have these massive back rents due. And, you know, something like that can't spark and uh, like, you know, a movement about this, then I don't know. I don't know what it would take. Um, but it feels like we might be heading to heading into a different, um, like just different terrain because of the crisis that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think it's- We're having the magic moment. It's about everyone. Yeah, like yeah. things are about And their to grandma and their dog <laughs> and their mailman. Everyone needs to read Can't Pay Well, well that's pay. A- I'm serious. It's a really good book. But- <laughs> And then we'll have the framework by which to understand the moment we're going through and the moment itself will be the matchstick. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's sort of, you know, I guess I'm like, I don't want to be too prophetic or optimistic, but I think that is the, that's the wager that we're trying to make, you know, is that we know that tens of millions of people are going to be in the can't pay scenario and already are. Like, that's where we are in this moment. And so, you know, if we can rise to the occasion as the debt collective and as organizers and turn that can't pay moment into a won't pay moment, right? Because mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to pay anyway. Like these debts are immoral because they're, they're debts related to your basic survival and, you know, things you should be entitled to as a human being. Then, yes, that could be our matchstick, right? So it's, you know, I... I, I In a way, I, I think... Mm-hmm. 
I'm sorry. No, no, but I think that's right. I mean, that, you know, we want the, the proposition we're making is like, you know, skip the shame, skip the self-reproach and like, let's get angry and get organized and indignant about this. In a way, I think it might, I think COVID kind of might help out with that because one of the things that I worry about sometimes is with everyone's lives kind of, with everyone's lives being, you know, built around hustle and bustle and everyone has to grind and grind that I feel that sometimes when things get so outrageous that that can some sometimes dampen people's want to fight. You know, you were talking about how being in debt can be a form of keeping the population subdued. Like, I feel like just using Trump as an example, if we were to wake up one morning and see that Trump did something like completely, completely outrageous, like more outrageous than the normal, that most people would be mad on their phone in the morning and then have to go to work. And I feel like COVID now they ain't got havoc shit. on they the economy. Now go. motherfuckers don't have shit to do. So they it's like, yo, let's go do. out in the street. Like how how would the uh, with the George Floyd protest and the protests that have followed since would that have been as massive and widespread if 40 million people didn't get lose their job beforehand? Well, what do you and think? Not have that to tie them down? I'm curious. I, I, I don't think so, personally. Mm-hmm. I think I think it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's I think that's right. I think there was something about people living in a different time scale because of the pandemic that enabled a deeper reflection for some people who might otherwise have just ignored it or um like moved on more quickly. Uh and so I think I do think pandemic time influenced um people's responses. I think the thing for me is that you know I just want people to be have a better analysis of power. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like how where is the power? What power do we have? What leverage do we have? And so that's it's like because I actually think there are lots of people who are pretty awake and who care about things and are disgusted by injustice. I think what we don't have in this country are, you know, solid organizations that are geared towards like um, class conflict mm-hmm. on the side of the working class, mm-hmm. right? Like unions are really, really incapacitated by the legal regime we're in. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of this country, imported from British common law was basically this idea like workers organizing was a conspiracy. It was illegal. But the, the legal regime has always been set up to encourage you know, investors and bosses to uh, collaborate, right? Like, what is an LLC, but just basically a legal mechanism so that, like, you know, people can collaborate and have a business and have limited liability, right? So from the very beginning of this country, it's like there has been an an assault on people's capacities to collaborate and have solidarity and and organize, um, organize in their interests. So I guess that's where... You know, I think if we need to make an intervention, it's like, okay, we all, we, you know, a lot of people care. Enough of us care about what's going on in the world that if we were just organized, we could change things. And care together. Right? (laughs) Like caring together in a strategic way that actually is like, where is the power? You know, where can we stop the flows of capital? Where can we interrupt exploitation? Where do we have political leverage, which is why it's so important for people 
like Mariah and others to be running for office and, you know, and, um, and having a uh, skin in that game. But I think, you know, it's really for me, the power analysis that we need to be developing and like building the organizational and institutional might to get in the way of business as usual. Um, you know, and, and protests are amazing and I'm moved by them and I've been at my share of them in my life, but like, I want, I want different forms of institutional power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't be respectful for your, of your time mm-hmm. since we're getting towards three 30. I don't know if you got to run back. Should we get to the last question? I'm really curious yeah. about the second to last question though. Second to last question. I do want to say one about, thing about the racial justice yeah. thing really quick is, you know, it's interesting yeah. that the phrase we always use is reckoning, that we're having a reckoning around racial justice. Yeah. No, that that word actually means, it's actually a reference to debt, right? It's a mm. settling of accounts. Mm. It's a calculation. And so it, it's kind of, you know, for me as someone involved in debtor organizing, it's interesting that our moral language is steeped in indebtedness and the payback of debts, right? So one thing the debt collective is trying to do and what we're trying to do with Campaign Won't Pay is like challenge the morality of debts, right? Like we don't, we don't, uh, we don't always have to pay. In fact, the rich walk away from their debts all the time. I mean, look at the revelations about Trump, right? We knew Trump had like six or seven bankruptcies behind him, but you know, he's like, he's like $400 million in debt or something like that. And he's been able to use it to just get richer and get more powerful. Um, but I think, you know, the, 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 the flip side of that though, is like, well, what debts do we want to pay? Like, we don't want to pay these student loans. We don't want to pay these medical bills. We should, we do want to pay reparations. We want to pay reparations. We want, you know, to like, we want to pay the climate debt that, you know, we as this rich industrialized question country, owe for, you know, burning up more than our fair share of carbon and to, you know, help pay back debt so we can, build a, a, a new green economy. So I think that the, yeah, the language of reckoning in this moment is interesting. Um, you know, and this question of like, okay, yeah, in a reckoning, like what, like we need receipts, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not just a shift of perspective that's required. That's really interesting. You know, as a linguist, I, that's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, a bomb to my soul oh my to know God. there's like a linguistic and etymological link between like this moment we're having and the language we're using about it. Oh, we could talk, we could do a whole interview just like love for etymology because the, oh like, my God. because Please where don't. where oh. words come from like the meaning like the reckoning it's like that meaning is even if you don't know it consciously it suffuses it like that's part of why yeah, we're going yeah. to that word. Mm. Um, I love words. <laughs> Words are so good. And you're good at words. Oh, yes. thank you. I really appreciate that. I really. If you uh, if you were rhyming, it would probably make some ill verses. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't I, think I'll you'd want to see that. Death strike bars for this episode. Sounds oh, like you got some you rapper that, in you. We would be. So, that's not even fair to say that because now you might not do it. It's not. No. It's not so fair. We, every, every episode, since it's about hip hop and politics, we rap in the intro and oh outro to the show. Yeah. And, and so really? for many weeks, a lot of times we freestyle, but for many weeks we like write verses about the topic. So I, this weekend, I'm going to sit down and see what I got for that strike bars. Oh, yeah. Then I'll have to have another dance party. I had one question yep. about scaling that mm-hmm. strike to like various yeah. institutions from a local governmental perspective. I was really intrigued by the chapter about governments refusing their debt and wondered if you could speak to that a little oh, yeah. bit. Just give me a little piece of advice about uh, how to bring this 
it to bear in uh, my local legislation. Oh, so um, where do we start? I think one one thing. Okay, to begin, we used to hear a lot about debt from the right wing, and the argument from the right wing was. The national deficit, we as a country are so in debt and we're just like a household. When a household is in debt, we need to like tighten our belt and we need belt. to cut our spending, right? And uh, and so therefore we're gonna have to cut social security and cut funding to education and cut, you know, everything except the military and except the police. So mm-hmm. that is, as we've seen post COVID fundamentally wrong. I mean, what did the federal government do? They just came up with trillions and trillions of dollars for corporations overnight yeah. without any discussion. So at the federal government level, that's wrong. At the state level and the municipal level, governments aren't able to just print money in the same way the feds are, right? So there are real budgetary constraints. But we have a dynamic where um, the rich people win. Why? Because we don't tax wealthy residents, right? States and local governments don't tax rich residents enough, don't tax corporations, um, end up imposing regressive taxes, right? Sales tax or whatever else. Right, right, right. And then what do we do? We issue bonds, which is a way, basically borrowing from rich residents. So you say mm-hmm. like, hey, rich people, we're not going to tax you, but we'll borrow your money and we'll pay you interest. And um, and then Wall Street will, will get a cut for brokering the deal. And so what we have today is situations where, you know, people, communities have to issue bonds for schools, for roads, but also like there was a big paper recently about police brutality bonds. So essentially city governments issuing bonds, borrowing millions of dollars um, so that they can pay when the cops kill people. So in other words, yeah. residents are paying for, for police misconduct. Yeah, for killer cops. But the investors in those bonds, and aka the rich residents, get their dividends and Wall Street gets a fee off of these, you know, bonds covering police brutality. So I think that's that that is a vivid example of just how messed up the system is. So, um, so one thing, you know, I think it's, it's, these deals are really commonplace. And so we are organizing, we have a hub debt collective Pennsylvania that's sort of centered in Philly. I'm engaging in, in campaigns that are focused on, um, renegotiating these municipal debt deals, right? So, you know, school systems, lose hundreds of millions of dollars a year because they're paying interest on these bonds and Wall Street's, you know, getting a cut. And that's money that could go to, you know, patching the roof or hiring more teachers or giving the students the computers they need to learn remotely, right? So I think I think there are some potential really interesting campaigns of municipal debt resistance. Uh, one dream we've had is, well, what if multiple cities went on strike? That's my dream too. That's what I was thinking <laughs> yeah. about, like finding other cities that are, that are, have, done bonds with a certain, you know. And you maybe you've all done got bonds with Goldman Sachs and then there's like a yeah. five city municipal strike against Goldman Sachs. I oh, think that, that there is another thing that cities and states could do that would be really cool, which is how do you protect your citizens from predatory lenders and debt collectors? Um, well, there's something called eminent domain, right? Eminent domain is where oh, yeah. the government can I think seize I dream about property. using eminent domain at night, man. Right. So seize all the hotels. Seize the hotels. Seize let people live in them. Seize the debts that people owe because you're, you know, those those sheets of all of the money that's oh, that's an asset. That's property that could be seized by eminent domain and erased. Um. Oh. <laughs> and we've been working, oh, we've been working with them, um, and we've been working with. <laughs> so this, we have been working with um, an econ- a leading economist 
uh, on this. And, and there's a wonderful assemblyman in New York named Ron King, Kim from Queens, New York Assemblyman. Yeah, we were, Kim, yeah, we were yeah. working with Ron Kim on this idea. Um, and so, I mean, there's so many things. This is, this is the thing. We have lots of rights on the books that aren't respected. I mean, that's the story of America, right? It's like, you know, so I think one thing is people need to get organized just to have the rights they have on the books enacted. Like that's, that's, that's true. And there's, there are consumer protections um, and, and things that, that we can mobilize and organize around. But then there's so much that, uh, there's so much that could be done if people were actually brave enough to use the state power at their disposal, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why we have built this whole movement pointing out the fact that the Department of Education has the power to cancel all student debt. Like, should Democrats control the Department of Education next year, right? We're not going to let them say, oh, sorry, Mitch McConnell won't let us do it, right? The Republicans yeah. are obstructing us. We're going to say, no, you actually 100% unilaterally have the power and you're just cowards or worse than that, you like to see people suffer, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think this question of, what what power do people ha what rights do people have that they can you know fight to enact? What power do people have that they should use? And then how can we push the envelope and imagine using some of these things like eminent domain or you know the the power of municipal finance to renegotiate the terms and and start democratizing the economy is like where our movements need to go next because I think you know victories like that are inspiring to people you know that's the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it would terrify Wall Street, which would also be fun. <laughs> Super fun. My fave. Well, yo, this was amazing. It I really feel like was. I could just talk for hours. This is so dope. But we, we, we probably, you know what? We'll probably have to ask you to come back on for something else. I'm sure. I would love that. But I also <laughs> hope we get to hang out in person one day. So I would really yeah, like that. Wouldn't hanging out in, per, in person happens again in general. I'm like, will yeah. It? Yeah. it will happen, I think. It's going to happen. It will. It's going to happen. Um, but I was, I'm so honored to be on oh, here. Um, and I feel like I'm talking to like an old friend. So yeah, I'm really. I feel the same. Yeah. Where can we, uh, where can people find you? Oh, all right. So, well, first of all, so what do we do? I've got hospital bills. You got bills? Yes, I got bills. Okay, hospital so, bills. So, everybody listening, we all got bills. What do we do now? www.debtcollective.org. Sign up. Join the union. If you don't have money to pay your dues, that's fine. You know, I think it's important that people, <laughs> I think it's important people pay dues because we don't want social movements that are funded by philanthropy. And yeah. we don't yeah. want social movements that are funded... Um, by people who are ultimately invested in maintaining the status quo. That's why it, it is important that we uh, own our organizations. <laughs> but there are debt dispute tools that you can use for free uh, to dispute any sort of uh, wage wage garnishment, social security garnishment, tax garnishment. You might be suffering if you're in default to dispute any debt and collections. Uh, and join especially the, the student loan debtors union because we want to force the hand of the government in the year ahead and, and make them abolish uh, all $1.7 trillion of student loans. And as someone oh, yeah. who has been working on this issue for the last eight years, I can tell you we're closer than we'd ever thought we'd be. So let's push it over the edge and make the Republican nightmare come true because what they always tweet is, what, you raise student loans, what's next? Credit cards, auto loans? Yes, yeah, we're always that. We're like, yes. yes, yes, yes. Like follow that line all the way through, buddy. That's where we're going. We're Cancel worst. rent forever. <laughs> That's how it should be. Never bring it back. That's how it should be, social housing. You should be able to live in a home and not in a commodity. Your life will be better. But that's where they find us, on the internet. 
where you find All everything right. these days. At <laughs> Debt Strike on Twitter. Oh yeah, at Strike Debt on Twitter. Strike Debt on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so yeah, much, Asha. Right. Yeah, this was you. amazing. It was really dope talking to you. I feel like we waiting on reparations. Let's get a beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waiting on reparations. Uh, dope, dope, dope. And I'm fighting for collective liberation. Yeah, we taking on the Titans by telling the big bankers we ain't making any payments for our hospitalizations or our cars or our credit cards. Tell them they should thank us for every dollar they making off the weight of all our student loans. Can't pay, won't pay. Time to tell them looters no. From Seattle to Nevada, Lewisburg to Louisville. And privatization in the race that us we shouldn't owe. Straight up abolish it. Give us free college and joblessness. Give free health care to all of us. We can't pay, so yeah. we won't pay. United yeah. that's right, because together we own the whole bank. Put a lean on my whip, I'm afraid when I park At 18, wanted kicks, put it straight in the car Started racking the bills, still it was confusing to see Stuck in my debt, up to my neck like I'm through in the sea Couldn't think long term what the future could be No, I can't unlearn this fucking useless degree I gotta pay that, the hump of my fortune don't wanna say jack With all I owe, make me feel like I'm stuck in a straitjack The dental, the state tax, the rent where I stays at Will I survive? I bet if I will I wish that I didn't once I see that medical bill Don't Jesus a damn rap. Ah. Uh, hey, my name's Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. And we are waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations. Hurry the fuck up. <laughs> See you guys next week. Waiting on Reparations is a production of iHeartRadio. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.